Welcome to Extra Milestone, where every month we celebrate a classic film anniversary. These are the films we believe went the extra mile in their filmmaking, so we're here to celebrate them as extra milestones in cinema history. I'm John Agroni, host of the Cinemaholics main show, and with me is the most devoted Shelley Winters fan I know. It's Julia Tatey. Hi, Julia. Hi. Thank you so much for having me back again. It's always great to have you here to talk about classic films because you always say something about every era of film that is insightful and inspirational to me, and I hope all the listeners. Oh gosh, that's so kind of you to say, and oh my gosh, John, you're rocking this boat. What is happening right now? You, We've got to get to what we're talking about this episode. I ain't going to jail for this one, eh? But yes, this month we're looking at the 1951 drama a place in the sun and julia tady of all the films that we could have selected for this month i sent you a list with plenty of really great options we had we we had no shortage of classic films that would have been worth discussing and i was actually surprised by how immediately no hesitation you went for a place in the sun you said this is the film that gets the extra milestone treatment why is that i'm very curious and i i think i asked you but i, I kind of wanted you to wait until this moment where you get to explain express your interest or yeah your interest in exploring or re-exploring this film yeah absolutely i mean a place in the sun i feel like has been gaining momentum in terms of how cinephiles have been looking back on it and appreciating it especially when it comes to the performances of montgomery clift elizabeth taylor and of course Shelley Winters, who, as you know and have already mentioned, I am a huge fan of. I've read the first half of her autobiography. Um, the direction by George Stevens I find really fascinating in terms of the visual language, the lighting. It's just such a cool film that I feel like has gotten this epitaph of being called ahead of its time even though I feel like it was perfectly placed in 1951 for generations in the future to talk about and really appreciate it. And for people of that time period to really ponder and think about what it was speaking to in terms of the social constructs that it laid out in its narrative. Absolutely. You know, we are definitely going to lay out where this film sort of falls in this this era of filmmaking the 1950s not too surprisingly is a decade of film that i think we we've we've covered a bunch of times on extra milestone and on cinemaholics but i always get excited to talk about 50s films because i always i feel like we're just scratching the surface of what films really were and what they represented at this time it really is a fascinating decade it's it's kind of connecting the world war II decade and which was really like merged with the Great Depression era as this period of filmmaking where they were really still figuring themselves out the studio system. 1950s definitely reckons with like this golden age of cinema where things really started to go off the rails in great and maybe not great ways. For A Place in the Sun, we're looking at a film that's kind of in the middle of George Stevens' filmography. This is one of the last films I ever saw from George Stevens. It's far from the first. The first of his films I ever saw was The Diary of Anne Frank, which is a wonderful, wonderful film. And then I also saw Shane. 
But A Place in the Sun is definitely one of his most successful films, especially critically and in terms of awards. We'll get into all that. But first, let's talk about our first time watching this movie. Julia Tatey, how did you first come across A Place in the Sun? Because I believe you told me before we started this show, this is your third watch. Yeah, so I actually, I'm pretty sure that I watched this film for the very first time when I was in school. We were talking about the classic period of Hollywood and stardom, and it was a lot about Elizabeth Taylor and her kind of skyrocket to fame. She was 19 years old when this picture came out, and that kind of really laid the groundwork and even more for the type of actress and the celebrity that she ended up being. An actress and a celebrity are two very different things I want to, you know, um, press upon that to any listeners. Um, but it's just really fascinating to look back on it from that first viewing and think about all the surprises and the narrative twists. And then I revisited it, I think, just over a year ago during this lockdown time, I just had this itch, especially after reading the first half of Shelley Winter's autobiography, which is entitled uh, Shelley, also known as Shirley. Um, it's really great. She's has so much moxie and she's just such a rat lady. And I really recommend anyone to go out and read it. Um, but just kind of re-reading her autobiography just made me want to go back and um, just check out this film. So I watched it a second time during this lockdown period, and then this was my third time watching it. And I still love it as much as the first time I watched it. I'm really glad this is so fresh in your mind. It's obviously fresh in mind because, well, this is my second watch. Also, I think I misspoke. It's Shelley, also known as Shirley. I just want to... Okay. rectify that for anyone listening i'm really sorry yes yes her her original name was shirley shrift yes and yeah yeah her, her she eventually became shelly winters as we know now yeah but yes so a place in the sun first time i watched this film was in high school and uh it was not too long after i had seen diary of anne frank and shane i think i saw those films early in high school and then getting toward the end i started to get more interested in film uh, because i actually saw those first two films through high school, through my English literature classes. And I was really interested in Place in the Sun because my teacher recommended it and said that it was a film based on both a novel and a play called An American Tragedy. So I was fascinated by the story of it because my background is I went to a very, very conservative religious school that was very anti-abortion. It was very anti, you know, women's rights. But in that context, they sort of looked at A Place in the Sun as this film that is like coming down very hard on like the morals of humanity and they saw it as a classic film in that sense which I always found pretty fascinating because even in that period of my life where I'm still sort of figuring out what I believe and all of my different worldviews, I definitely did not have that same reading of A Place in the Sun when I first saw it. In fact, I, I didn't have the highest opinion of this film the first time that I saw it. I think because I was just a little bit too young. I, I don't think that I had the appreciation for classic film of this genre or of this style that I believe I do now. Part of it is because I found the film to be a little slow and I, I thought that the pace wasn't 
as great. And I did like films from this era. I, I liked, you know, like Rebel Without a Cause and more flashy studio films, but I hadn't quite yet sunk into the deeper, more nuanced ones that weren't trying to be noir, but people still call noir anyway, that sort of thing. And, and yes, at that time, I was not as familiar with Monty Clift and Elizabeth Taylor and Shelley Winters and all of that wonderful film history makes this film come alive for me now all these years later. And I'm so glad to have revisited this film because I was wrong about it. 17-year-old so, uh, John Agroni was extremely wrong about A Place in the Sun. It is a good film for sure. It is a very good film, John. Well, let's set this thing up so then we can start getting into that and what we think about the movie all these years later. I, I want to start by addressing a few things we haven't mentioned. The music is by Franz Waxman, and it is definitely a fantastic score. You heard it at the beginning of this show. And I also wanted to bring up this this time period because again we don't talk about the 1950s too often on extra milestone we get to it when we get to it i think a few times we've talked about it but through films that are not based in america so i did want to bring up that this is a film coming out when the korean war is still going on there's a lot of nuclear testing and we kind of are having not the beginnings of the red scare i think we're like in kind of in the really the height of the Red Scare, which is important to note for a film like this that sort of dives into a lot of things having to do with class warfare, about uh, the inequalities between the rich and the poor. That is certainly what this film is getting into, which I found interesting considering uh, how this film is coming out so long after the Great Depression and everything like that. And yeah, a lot, a lot of other things are going on. But yeah, if, if for those of you who aren't as up in your history, this is the year Alice in Wonderland is coming out, a film we might talk about later this year. This is the year where we have the Soviet Union really stocking up on its military and its oppression in several in uh, the Eastern theater and everything like that. So that's kind of where 1951 is at. I, I don't know, though, hearing that, do you think any of that really has bearing on a place in the sun? I'm curious what you think, Julia. I think so. I think that, you know, when I think about the um, context of this time period, superstition is something that really comes to mind. People being superstitious of each other's motives. I mean, we see George Eastman kind of go through these different... I don't want to say ebbs and flows, but he kind of almost goes through different pieces of interrogation, even when it comes to meeting Angela Vickers' family members. Um, it seems almost like a screening process, almost. And if it weren't for everything else that's happening to George Eastman, which we will get into later, then that would seem almost like very superstitious, the way that it's being kind of portrayed and laid out, very intimate, very dark and deep. Um, and there's also still this very like distinct line between economic pieces of economies and how it's divulged into different people and different families as well. Very well put. Very well put. It, it's definitely a film of its time. And I also want to mention that this is coming out from Paramount, which, of course, in the 1950s was really, really at the height of its powers. And uh, the, the film, you know, we kind of mentioned it is based on a novel, but I forgot to mention that the novel itself is inspired by true events, that something similar to what happened in this movie actually did happen in the very early 1900s. And they made a novel about it. And that really does inform a lot of the story, which will, of course, we're going to 
set up the story. But first, let's listen to part of the trailer for A Place in the Sun. This is the unforgettable story of a boy from nowhere fighting desperately for his place in the sun, torn between the conflicting passions that shaped his destiny. Montgomery Clift, dazzled by the radiant beauty of Elizabeth Taylor, a girl so far above him she seemed like a goddess, but only too human when he held her in his arms. We'll think of something somehow, whatever way we can. We'll have such wonderful times together, just the two of us. Montgomery Clift, bound by the warm and vital appeal of Shelley Winters, the girl who clung to him with an overwhelming hunger for love. I've been wanting to do that for such a long time. So did I. Will we see each other again like this? It's up to you. You gotta be careful. One love grew in the shadows of the night, sealed by a secret they could share with no one. The other love flamed in the bright light of gaiety and laughter. A need that drove him with all the recklessness of youth itself. A dream that was built on deception. You lied to me, George, for the last time. Now I want you to come and get me. Yes, uh, I'll come down in the morning. And if you're not here in half an hour, I'll come where you are. I'll tell them everything, George, I mean it. The film follows a young, kind of wandering man. He's the poor nephew of a very rich industrialist. And his name is George Eastman, played by Montgomery Clift. His uncle is Charles Eastman, played by Herbert Heise. And George Eastman is, is a young man. He's in, I think it's probably like his mid-20s, something like that. He's very working class, but he's thinking that his connections to his uncle are going to allow him to find a way to enter the higher society. It's mentioned many times in the film, and we see it laid out very directly that he actually comes from a very religious background, which ties into a lot of what you were talking about earlier, Julia. But the main brunt of the plot is that he is torn between two women. There is the young factory worker, Alice Tripp, played by Shelley Winters, who he meets when he's on the ground floor of this entry-level job. He's working at the factory. They strike up a relationship together. He immediately goes after her. But then as he starts to climb the corporate ladder, he begins to see, maybe I could do even better or better in quotation marks, of course, in that maybe he could attract the eye of a young socialite who is played here by Elizabeth Taylor. Her name is Angela Vickers. And from there, the film gets darker. It gets more twisted. And there are a lot of turns. We won't give any of those away quite yet. We'll give you plenty of warning. But Juliet, let's take a look at a couple of reviews of this film. I want to take a look at a review that came out in 1951 and a film that came out very recently. So we can get a sense of what did critics say about this film back in 1951 and what are, what are critics kind of saying these days? Now, this review came out July 18th, 1951 for Variety. And of course, A Place in the Sun premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in, on April 5th, 1951, which is why we're choosing it for April. That said, from Variety, we have this review by Herb Golden. And Golden, and I'm going to be careful here because he gives a lot of things away in his review. So I'm going to make sure I don't spoil the film too early here. But yes, so he says, 
Stevens has given meticulous care to every aspect of A Place in the Sun. Michael Wilson and Harry Brown, the screenwriters, have prepared a screenplay that is not only appropriate that not only appropriately updates the action to circa 1950, but that in all but one aspect fully catches the basic quality of the emotional web that spins the three characters and its tragedy. Stevens has obviously given tremendous thoughts every nuance of his own direction to get credibility, movement, and all the touches that contribute to making a good film a fine art form. So I, I can't say anything else because literally in that paragraph, they give away what happens at the end of the movie. So I'm not going to go there. But uh, yeah, Julia, what do you think of this review from 1951? I mean, from what you've read, I tend to kind of lead towards agreeing with it. I really do think that George Stevens brings together all of these elements that really work. And I think that later on we'll get into the visual language of the text that we're talking about because there is so much and it's very blunt visual language. I should preface that. But so many elements are brought together that really make this film work in every sense of the word in terms of the casting, the writing, the way that the story progresses forward. Um, yeah, I I tend to kind of lean towards that. And we can go more into talking about, you know, the reception of the film in 1951 versus how it's being seen today and how people are suddenly catching on to the fact that A Place in the Sun is a really great movie. We should talk about it more. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do want to mention because uh, it, it is a little interesting how this film was taken by critics early on. It was a critical success. It won six Academy Awards, uh, including for uh, or it got the Golden Globe for Best Motion Picture and Drama. And yeah, it, it got nominated for, I think, three awards. It won six Academy Awards. It was nominated for nine which is pretty incredible. It's a great track record. Very, very great track record there. But yeah, so, and then critics critics liked it, but I think over time, some critics started to reject it eventually. Charlie Chaplin, though, called it the greatest movie ever made about America, which is pretty fascinating. But let's, let's take a look at a modern review because, you know, I was, I was kind of seeing hints that like maybe not everybody loved this movie that much. But I struggle to find negative reviews of this film in the modern day. Most films really say that this film holds up. There are a few that were negative, but I didn't find any of them very convincing or I, I found them to be a little bit too reactionary. I want to take a look, though, at this very positive review from Peter Bradshaw, who wrote about A Place in the Sun back in 2013, which, Julia, that marks basically the first year I ever really started writing about film or like in a way that people were actually reading my work. So uh, <laughs> fun year there, a um, <laughs> little bit of synergy. But yeah, so Peter Bradshaw, he says in his Guardian review, he actually calls this a noir masterpiece. Mm. And I just want to read the first first part of his review. He says, noir suspense merges with romantic tragedy in this stunning 1951 movie adapted from the Theodore Dreiser novel. It features two of the most beautiful people in movie history, reference to what you were talking about, Montgomery Clift and Elizabeth Taylor. They are almost like reflections of each other when they kiss, something incestuous and thrillingly forbidden throbs out of the screen. I don't agree with this at all. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. Do you, do you agree? I, I personally don't think that there is anything that thrilling about their on-screen chemistry. I just found it. I don't find it thrillingly forbidden. I just find it very tragic and depressing almost. 
Yeah, I mean, if you go into even more of the relationship off screen between Elizabeth Taylor and Montgomery Clifton, this is something that Shelley Winters talks about in the first half of her autobiography, is they were so incredibly close throughout their respective careers. And Elizabeth Taylor referred to Montgomery Clift as one of her confidants throughout her life. They starred in a number of pictures together. And perhaps it's because they're both really pretty white people with dark hair who are making out. Perhaps it's the knowledge that they were so close throughout their respective careers. Who knows what it is, but I mean, perhaps I can maybe justify what Bradshaw is saying there, but it's just really fascinating to see two incredibly famous young stars at the height of their fame almost. I mean, we all know that Elizabeth Taylor would go on to have decades of a long career, whereas Montgomery Clift, his life tragically ended just two short, maybe two short decades after this film was completed. Yeah, he passed away in 1966. He was only 45 years old. Yeah, 45 years old. I was going to say in his 40s or 50s, but it's, you know, they were both so close throughout their entire life and they regarded each other so closely as confidants and as really good friends making it through this very intense studio system when they were both very big stars um, also, Montgomery Cliff's, you know, relationships were highly scrutinized and his sexuality in later years was really scrutinized as well. So, I'm, I mean, looking back on it with that context, of course, you might have some sort of biases coming into that. Um, I did not have the same inclination that Bradshaw had when he was watching the film, but at the same time, you know, perhaps I just wasn't, you know, uh, walking into this picture with that same frame of mind as he was. Sure. I, I think I think his interpretation is valid for him. You know, mm -hmm. I, I certainly Definitely. take no issue with it. I guess it, it for me, it, it's so difficult to balance the like what we know about these actors today versus what people must have known about those actors in the time, mm -hmm. which is why I want to be very sympathetic to how different people have different reactions to this on-screen relationship. I think with Monty Cliff, you know, it, it is a very different life that he led uh, compared to Elizabeth Taylor, I suppose, because for Elizabeth Taylor, she was a child actress. And this film is kind of like really at the peak of her teenage stardom, as you mentioned. For Montgomery Clift, you know, I, I you know, I'm, I'm familiar with plenty of his work from the 50s and 60s, certainly like The Misfits and Judgment at Nuremberg and plenty others. But I think what I find most fascinating about his career in my own personal way is how I connect him so much to one of our modern movie stars, which is John Hamm. And the reason is because the character of Don Draper, for sure, you can really tell, is lifted quite heavily from this performance, from Monty Clift in this movie. If you're not familiar with Mad Men and the character of Don Draper, I'm sure, you know, look, people have been talking about Mad Men endlessly for many years now. It, it came out in 2007, and I'm sure I have nothing to add to the conversation. But one thing that I will mention is that it does paint how I watch this movie today, because Mad Men is something that I did get into more when I was in college, and it was a show that really addressed the way that 
the, this sort of duplicitous person with a secret life, the lengths that they will go to in order to enter the upper echelons of society. And I personally find it really resonating, like the way that a person who lies so easily can find themselves also morally tortured. It's a very complicated thing. And it's the reason why I brought up earlier that I found this film to not be the black and white, you know, good versus evil sort of thing that my more, you know, religious Christian kind of uh, framework was trying to put it into that box. If anything, I think this film is saying very deep and contradicting things about morality that is far more interesting than I think this would be as a Bible story. If anything, I consider it a modern Aesop's fable and one that is very complex and difficult to really get at first watch. But that is that is my Don Draper reference for the day. I promise, Julie, I will not mention Mad Men any any other time on this show or on this specific podcast. I can't promise this specific episode of this specific podcast. We will we've done our Don Draper reference Ah. for the day. We can (laughs) check that off the list, John. But Julia, yeah, what what does this movie mean to you? That, that's like one of the first questions I wrote down after I saw this. It's like what what I want to know from you is what does it mean to you? And what what is when you watch this film, what is your main takeaway? Oh gosh, I think that the first thing that I really think about is this character of George Eastman trying to play this game of capitalism as if he was a player in it the entire time. You know, he doesn't come into this this game of like family cards with the Eastman family and the Vickers family as if he has already been dealt a hand. He's trying to figure it out as he goes along. He's trying to make decisions as he goes along. He is very knee-jerk reaction when it comes to a lot of the decisions that he is making and ultimately I think that he becomes the reaper of everything that he has sown by the end of the film. It's just so fascinating. You know, you talk about the juxtapositions of morality and how it's very vague and not binary whatsoever. And then we can also talk about the inferences of capitalism within this post-World War II kind of taking a more cynical look at American society and what people may or may not be willing to do. Um, in order to climb the ladder or in order to achieve this quote-unquote American dream as George Eastman is seemingly going about trying to achieve. It's in talking about, you know, the social constraints that it puts Alice Tripp in and it's, it's just very, very fascinating to think about all of the gray areas that this film is highlighting because it isn't a binary film and it might have seemed to be for some people but I think that in between the lines that are being read is a lot of inferences that can be dragged out and really contextualized in circumstantial experiences. Yeah this this film is pretty daring and especially for its time, you know, you really nailed it, I think, when you mentioned how it's coming out when the big message people were getting in the 1940s and 1950s was work, 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 and do what you need to do. The jobs are here for you. And there is this mentality that if you work, the system will work for you. And for a lot of people, that was certainly the case. But, you know, for people who were born into it, for sure. 
and for people who already sort of had these things kind of on their plate. And I think this movie is really addressing that explicitly, but in a way that I suspect went over a lot of people's head in that time. Where, because I do think the film leaves a lot of room for interpretation when it comes to who it's villainizing. Obviously, it's villainizing a very particular character here who does something that is morally reprehensible, even though the film kind of tries to find ways to almost soften it or almost create room for doubt because that applies to how the novel works. But at the same time, I do think it's pretty clear about the people in this film who are actually innocent. And one thing I don't like about this film totally is how it treats the Shelley Winters character in certain aspects. And I found myself struggling with that because I think my modern sensibilities are really conflicting with my understanding of how a film would approach a character like that versus today. Did, did you have any, you know, conflicts with that? Or how, how did you interpret the Shelley Winters character here for good or for ill? Oh, gosh, I think that Alice Tripp is such a fascinating character. I really think that she is just trying to make everything work as best as she can for her own circumstance. I mean, to be a pregnant, unmarried woman in the 1950s, late 1940s is just, it's like wearing a scarlet letter, almost. I mean, when the when the doctor that she goes to tells her to just go home to her parents and kind of explain everything to them and to try and see if she can make it work, it, it simplifies something that is such a heavy, heavy burden, I think, that was on so many women. We know it was on so many women, but we don't have the opportunity to hear that many of their stories. And to see a uh, fictional character, a woman who represents kind of a composite of so many other women's experiences, and this one woman of Alice Tripp, it really heightens just the disparity and just the lack of options and the lack of choice that was offered to women during that time. Um, I really hesitate to say that she is like a naive character or anything like that. If anything, George Eastman is the most naive character amongst them all. Absolutely. I think that we can agree upon that. Um, but I really think that Alice Tripp is, is just really trying to make the best of everything. I mean, we see her in that boat with George saying, you know, I, I know that you don't love me, but I think that we can make it work. And I know that you can maybe like me as, as we make this go and we can have a nice little house and we can start over, you know, she's trying to even, we hear her talking about their situation and their circumstance and her circumstance and trying to find the best possible um, way that this can work out. And it, it's really tragic, if anything, you know, Alice Tripp represents a very tragic part of this entire story in terms of the way that, you know, her storyline ends, knowing that she was just trying her best to make everything work as much as possible. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more about what you said there, especially about how she's not naive. I mean, you see the pain on her face like she's not stupid. She knows exactly the situation she is in. And the performance is so good in that aspect. It, it's subtle when it needs to be subtle. It is expressive when the moment absolutely calls for it. So a lot of that is the performance. A lot of that is how the script allows room for her. I think that there's only one scene 
that kind of, for me at least, I, I struggled. I struggled with, would this character really do that? And it's when I I was worried that the film was trying to, and this is kind of where we're going to start getting a little bit more into like the middle part of the film toward the end of the film. So definitely don't keep listening if you have no idea what this film really is about. But there, there's that whole scene where she starts to threaten him and blackmail him. And I was really worried of like, what, is the film trying to in some weird way justify even a little bit like why he would be desperate enough to even conjure this situation and i i don't know exactly where i stand on this like i don't want to believe that that's the case i i want to believe that the film is understanding the audience. The audience knows that nothing justifies what he does. And, you know, it doesn't matter if she is upset or if she is nothing she says or any behavior she makes allows her to deserve anything that happens to her. So that's where I, I overall fall away from it. But what about you? So films and filmmakers and writers and directors, actors may have like one specific intention when they come into their direction, their writing, their performance, what have you, but intention doesn't matter. What comes out of it is interpretation. I think Emily Vanderwerf once wrote that or said that. Um, it was an incredible cultural critic for Vox, and, you know, I tend to agree. So really when we talk about that specific scene, when we talk about Alice Tripp's actions, you know, what George Stevens intended, what even the novel might have intended based off of what was written in the uh, source, the text source, and then what Shelley Winters may have been conveying, none of that might matter in terms of what we're actually trying to process. So I think, you know, with with our thoughts, John, I, th I tend to agree with you. I really don't think, I just think that this is a woman at the end of her rope who is really just trying to figure out a way to make this work and make this happen and get to a point where she isn't disregarded in society anymore. I mean, to think about what it would mean to be an unmarried pregnant woman and then become an unmarried pregnant or an unmarried single mother at that time is yeah. it's you know, I, I I don't even think that at the moment I don't even have the, the, the proper language to describe it because I don't think that it was really quite uh just and fair the way that the system that those women had to navigate were had to face if if that makes any sense <laughs> it really does it really does i think the the film script is really smart about really helping the audience especially people who will watch this and not really understand how gatekeeping high society can be and they find very subtle ways to do it you know they don't have a scene where he's trying to get him into a party for example it's like you're not on the list kid like they don't try to do anything hammy like that they instead allow for discussions about him when he's not there uh, for example very early on in the film it's a great establishing scene in terms of just showing us how preserved this world is from him and why he would feel disconnected from it, isolated from it, feeling like he should just sort of strike out on his own. And that is when I believe either his cousin or his aunt says something to it, the effect of, well, what are we going to do about him socially? Like he's not even a human being. He, he shows up, he comes all the way there from Chicago and they don't even give the guy dinner. They don't give them a place to say, stay. They're not really family. They immediately are like, oh, did you find a place? We can help you make sure you find a place. Like instead of inviting him in and being hospitable, it's such a clear metaphor for how this world is like, we will regard you, but even if you have our name, 
an outsider's an outsider. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that that is, it, it's such a well put station. And it's, it's something that I think a lot of people hopefully will watch and internalize because that is absolutely what happens. And I, I wish that wasn't the case. And obviously the film is more about how he as a working class person understands this. He's not, he's not very naive and at least in this sense, he's naive about a lot of things. You're right. But I think he knows he understands that if anything that happens between that has happened between him and Alice comes out, that's it for him, which is what brings him to this place where he feels like he has to, he will do anything in order to get what he wants. So my next question for you is the film sort of centers a lot of this around his affection for Angela Vickers. Clearly he's attracted to her. He has eyes for her. The first time he sees her, he immediately, as soon as she strikes up a conversation with him, he's saying things like, I've loved you since before I saw you <laughs> pretty, pretty ridiculous. But do you think though, that it's really a love for her? Do you, that is prompting his at his detestable actions or do you think it's his desperation to get into this world? Do you think it's both? Like, where, where do you think it really lands? Oh, I think that it's a combination of two things. I mean, Elizabeth, we can't discount that Elizabeth Taylor's a beautiful, beautiful actress, incredibly talented, um, just creates a scene and makes it into a canvas whenever she's in it. Um, but I think it's more in terms of how George sees Angela Vickers has this representation of a way of getting out or moving up the ladder. I mean, and even let's go into the visual language too. When George Eastman is staying in that, um, that room that he has away from the Eastman family, you have that flashing light of the Vickers name in the background, just almost like teasing him. It's right there. It's, it's just within reach and it just flashes and then it goes out and dims and it flashes and it goes out and dims yeah. and it's oh. an omnipresent visual for what he could have that is right there just within reach but as we know at the end he he just cannot grasp it yeah if any of you out there are, have ever been interested in writing novels or screenplays i know one very persistent lesson you will be taught is that you really write the visuals of a scene to be very specific about what is happening in this scene or what is the background or atmosphere of the scene and this film has plenty of that like you just mentioned there's also the fact that when he's on a phone call with his mother just like literally there's a sign in the back of the mission where she is it's like how long has it been since you wrote your mother like it, it's very on the nose in those respects and we had a conversation kind of off the air too about whether or not this is a melodrama. And I, I said it was a melodrama because it has melodramatic moments, but I don't mean it as a slight. I've never looked at a film being melodramatic as a bad thing or having a negative connotation, especially films of the 1950s. But in, in terms of like what I think you're ascribing to that label, Julia, why do you, why do you disagree with it? I, I guess, would you call this a, a stand, like a romantic drama or a thrilling drama? Where, where do, how do you describe it? labels and terms um, you don't have to yeah i mean if you don't want to give it a label i'm totally fine with that as well I don't let know. it be i think it's just such a fast it, it's not a hybrid genre i don't want to say that it is one of those i mean you mentioned one of the reviews that described it as a noir um it's it's a bit of a thriller it's definitely a romance i, I won't disagree with that 
It's absolutely a drama. I mean, if you look at IMDb, those are the two prominent genres that it lists. But yeah. I think that there's just a lot more going on beneath the surface of just the dramatizations and the romance that's depicting. Yeah, and I think a lot of people will probably compare, I know people have compared this film for many years to Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca for a lot of obvious reasons. They're very different films, but they do have some similar strains, particularly in how they both have a lot of romance and things like that early in the film, but then more noir elements start to creep in, and then eventually you have a courtroom case. <laughs> That's kind of how both of these films operate, although plenty of films kind of operate by that that structure. We got to end with the law or with a, a legal, like a bunch of lawyers talking about everything we just saw. And, it, you know, it's a plot device. Even Airbud did it. But regardless, <laughs> I I definitely look at this film as one that I think the reason it actually cuts a little bit above for me, even though it's not my favorite film from this era, for sure. It's not my favorite George Stevens film. Definitely not my favorite Elizabeth Taylor film or performance, but it is really strong. And I think one of my favorite scenes for that is a scene that kind of removed from this movie is really its own thing in a lot of ways, but it's their first real conversation. And I even wrote down the dialogue because I found it so good. <laughs> oh, is it when he's playing pool by himself? Yes, he's playing oh, pool. Oh, it's so much fun. It's so good. I keep thinking about the way that Elizabeth Taylor <laughs> says, it's me, mama. I think it's mm -hmm. so funny. I, I really think that this film has to sell that she would like him. And I don't think it always does a great job at that. I think the film really leaps at some point of like why she would like him so much. And I, I definitely was giving it a lot of thought afterward. I was like, well, you know, is it that he represents something? He's like a catalyst. He is an outsider. He's interesting to her. I wish the movie had been a little bit more playful with how her socialite life is very boring, but he kind of mixes things up. But then, of course, it goes way too far. He's like this rebellious figure, you know, he's mm -hmm. like the person that she brings into the fold that her parents end up questioning, you know, why is she doing this? If her mother ends up saying, if it wasn't my daughter, I would be wondering who he is too, or something to that effect when they're dancing together. So I think that it's just a really interesting thing that I think there's a great deal of fascination. I mean, Angela meets this young man who is outside of her social class. We can begin with that. And... He's a very attractive young man. He's an Eastman. We have three things right there. Why wouldn't she find, you know, even if there's not physical attraction, the idea of him is attractive enough to pursue something? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned one of the most important elements. He does look like Montgomery Cliff. He's got that <laughs> for sure. Yeah. And and of course, they're, as we mentioned, their they're meet cute is wonderfully done you know she is clearly flirting with him and sort of trying to see how he's going to respond to her there are a lot of moments she checks him out she like straight that. up checks him out when when he's getting ready to mm -hmm. shoot some pool and she's just standing right behind them right behind him he deserves it because he objectified her first just yeah that's true yeah <laughs> They they definitely were checking each other out. They were there's clear there is a clear attraction there, and I I personally find just a pretty you know, person wearing pretty things in a pretty place. Mm -hmm. It's certainly of his character that he's courageous. He shoots his shot. Like that's certainly an aspect of his character that is consistent. That he sees opportunities and he goes for it. He doesn't sort of shy away. And the modern sort of actor character or the kind of character you would see in a lot of films like romance films is the, the man tends to be a little bit more reserved a little bit more keeps the cards close to his chest lets the the prospective 
romantic partners come to him in that sense. But in this case, no, he sees what he wants and he goes for it, which of course ties into the themes of the film. So yeah, I think, I think it works really well, especially adapting from real life events. I assume the novel plays into that a bit as well. And then of course they have to make it work for the film. Mm, yeah, definitely. Is there anything else we haven't mentioned enough? I mean, we've, we've of course talked about our three leads quite a bit here. I like all of them. I like the, I like these performances and I don't love how the film kind of lays out the, like you watch like toward the end of the film and then we're kind of giving a few minor things here away, but there are plenty of scenes where you're like, okay, this is going to come up because he's terrible at crime. <laughs> like, There's a lot of that. I mean, you mentioned the performances, so can we talk about those a little bit? Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I definitely want to talk about is that Shelley Winters and Montgomery Clift came from the Actors Studio, which came out of New York City. They were both in the same class with Marlon Brando and James Dean, and they were really the first wave of actors that made this mainstream, um, well, made method acting mainstream, made the method mm -hmm. of method acting mainstream. Um, so they really were this first class of actors that started to delve more into the memory of their experiences and started to divulge those emotions into their performances. As we know, like James Dean was incredibly famous for that. Marlon Brando was very intense when it came to his emotional performances. And Montgomery Clift and Shelley Winters may have been more reserved, but they were definitely a part of that. And I think that we can tell in terms of, you know, what I was really fixated on was Montgomery Clift's awkwardness and his real understanding that he did not belong in a lot of the scenes that he was in within A Place in the Sun. And you could tell that just by how he was carrying himself in his shoulders and in his arms and in his face. It was very clear that he was uncomfortable and awkward. And then we look at someone like Elizabeth Taylor, who was brought up in this studio system where she was beautiful and she's such a star and she is an incredible actress. I do not want to disregard her acting, but it's just such a very fascinating and different style compared to her uh, counterparts, Montgomery Clift and Shelley Winters. No, I said I wouldn't mention Mad Men again, but will you permit it? Yeah, well, you can have, you'll have it a second time, and then we cannot have that the next time that we discuss a film. John, I, I just cannot have it. Okay. You, you're going to have to, you're going to have to walk away, have a highball, and mm -hmm. then move on. I'll make sure the next one we, we select is not so conducive to such conversation, but mm -hmm. I just have to bring up a few connections here. It, I mean, especially when you bring up method acting and the actor's studio, particularly with just the character of Don Draper. And look, if you are unfamiliar with this era of film and the idea of an actor, a person living a double life, and you're like, well, you know, I, I don't know. I want to watch something. I need a, a palate cleanser or I need some like something, the shallow end of the pool, as it were. Mad Men is a great jumping off point for that because the character of Don Draper is so obviously lifted from the Monty Clift of this film and the way that he is almost like that show is almost about how you could people are method actors in their personal lives and this movie in a way is like that because if you really look at george eastman he's acting he's pretending to be someone else he's not necessarily lying about his 
his entire uh, background. He is forthcoming about that, which is a stark contrast to Don Draper. But Don Draper is a character, as we find out in the first season of Mad Men, is somebody who is willing to change his name. He's someone who is willing to maybe even murder somebody if that means that he can get this life, be with the woman who is out of his social class. And uh, I just, I always love sort of revisiting this period of, of time because you can see the direct connections to Mad Men, including the fact that Elizabeth Taylor, her first husband, was the son of Conrad Hilton, who happened to be, of course, one of the main characters in season, I believe, three of Mad Men. So that that is it. Okay, I'm done talking about Mad Men and the weirdness of uh, that connection there. All right, John, you're cut off now. I'm cut off. You're cut off. <laughs> Any final thoughts on A Place in the Sun? Is there anything about the title of the film that you want to address? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, I know that you and I talked about this off the airwaves, um, the internet waves. But, you know, I, I think about, you know, the title of the film isn't particularly mentioned, but I couldn't help but think about Icarus and this mm -hmm. mythological story about this person who just flew too close to the sun in order to try and um, achieve something far beyond his reach and ended up, you know, coming down into a ball of flames, as it were. It's it's really fascinating to think about um, that metaphorical language applied to George Eastman and how he is this young man who reaches for the sun, who reaches for the stars, and he he can't he he can't reach it at all. And in fact, he even falls into the pits of Hades. Yeah, and then we also have to bring up Ophelia, who, you know, there is literally a painting of Ophelia. Let's talk about that painting, because I love that painting. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. right there the entire time. Very sad foreshadowing there. Uh, if you don't know the story of Ophelia and the, the Shakespearean tragedy of that, that's what this is. It's a Shakespearean tragedy, and it's, it's very fitting in more ways than one. Oh, gosh, I love thinking, oh, my gosh, the visual language. I know it's very blunt with the vicar's lights just mm -hmm. flashing and the Ophelia <laughs> the, the, painting right there. The book right that says there. teach yourself high school. <laughs> mm, my gosh. But it's, oh, I love that Ophelia painting. I remember watching it for the very first time and thinking, well, I know that painting. And, and that mean, that that's too prominent to think that something bad isn't going to happen. And then the bad thing happens. It happens. So, oh, gosh, that's great stuff. Great stuff from George Stevens. Well, I encourage anyone who has not watched this movie yet and they're still listening for some reason, they don't care if they get spoiled on things, more power to you. But please check out this movie if you can. I rented it. Um, however, it is available. Check out your local library. I'm sure you can find yourself a copy. I believe you can probably find it somewhere on YouTube. And yeah, any, any way that you can see it. I don't know, though, if this is a available via Criterion. Do you know of anything that uh, is available for this one? It's currently not available on Criterion, but it is available with an Amazon Prime subscription. Perfect. All right. We'll definitely look into that if you want to check out the film. And I, I certainly am looking forward to what we talk about next month. We've, we've talked about some very, very striking films with with femme fatales and then this month we had well i guess questioning femme fatales last month with gilda and then this month really diving into the 1950s is, does this mean we're doing the 1960s next month yeah man let's get weird but all right thank you as always for listening and julia thanks for talking to me about movies again 
Yeah, I love talking about cinema and movies and films. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Be sure to subscribe to Cinemaholics on your favorite podcast app of choice or find us on YouTube. See you all next time.